This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Podcast. We've got a takeover of the finance section, which means a deep dive. We're talking all about private equity. It's all about private equity. And why now? The reason is it has become a hugely influential part of the global economy, only getting more important in a lot of ways, especially as we get closer and closer to that 2020 election. Go online, check out the cover of the magazine on newsstands because it just shows visually all of the aspects of our life where private equity is, whether it's housing, whether it's hospitality. I mean, they are everywhere. Whether it's advising Mm -hmm. the presidents of the world's most important countries on how to get along. And a lot of the questions we have for this issue really centered around, okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean for gender equality? What does it mean for income inequality? What does it mean for influence in Washington? And where does all that money come from? Exactly. So it's a must read. Also this week, a new way to measure wealth and Business Week Talks, we catch up with the CEO of Delta. Plus, we've got a tech startup with a lot of friends in the administration. First up, though, let's get back to the cover story. It's a private equity takeover of the finance section. And Jason, this is your world. You wrote the intro to the section. Well, I did have uh, a hand in doing all this, and it was a huge team effort across the newsroom. And that's largely because this is an industry. To call it an industry is actually a little bit of an understatement. It has its tentacles in so many parts of the global economy the political world as well. Businesses obviously are touched by this. You think about it from the perspective of retirees even. Right, exactly. And I think that's why it's getting more attention, right? Because we have a lot of the public pension funds that are getting much more involved. They're looking for returns in a low-yield environment. And so they're increasingly turning to private equity. But as a result, private equity getting a little bit more scrutiny. Well, and let's be fair, it's a $4 trillion industry. That's Mm -hmm. a massive chunk of the economy. And when you think about the number of private equity backed firms, it's about 8,000. That's almost double the number of publicly listed firms. So when you think about that, when you think about the, you know, everything from J. Crew to Supreme to your dentist's office to daycare centers, I mean, we could go on and on and on. Right. And that's not even including all the things they have owned in the past. Dunkin' Donuts, the Weather Channel, Hilton Hotels. A big part of the story is here we are 10 years out from the financial crisis. These guys, the private equity firms, when so many of the financial firms needed bailouts from the government, Private equity didn't, and they saw opportunities, especially when a lot of the valuations came down, depressed properties, um, literally properties, but lots of different businesses, and they scooped in, and that really has been uh, a big reason for their rise. Well, they stepped into a lot of places where people either wouldn't go or weren't allowed to go anymore, whether it was lending to companies, which a lot of the banks got out of, whether it was single-family homes. You know, Blackstone became one of the biggest landlords Mm -hmm. in the United States because because they went and bought up a bunch of foreclosed homes and then turned them into rental properties. Yeah, exactly. And I also think what's interesting, as you mentioned, uh, they are involved in more companies than we see in the public markets. And here we are at this interesting time in our market environment where you're increasingly seeing companies stay private longer. Uh, There's a lot more going on because of the investor money that's around in the private markets versus the public markets. And uh, I think that's why we're also talking a little bit more about private equity and their role in all of that. And let's also not forget that there's an enormous amount of money that's been made. This is a business that has minted 
dozens of billionaires. You know, exactly. you think about the money that's been generated. Largely, this is on the basis of a favorable tax treatment, not to get too wonky, but- Carried interest. Here a, we go. Here we go. <laughs> but they've spent a lot of money. The industry has sort of fighting to keep that in place in Washington, and they have really- increase their visibility in Washington. And that's a big part of this story as well, because they've had to. So with all this going on, one of the stories that we wanted to look at is the returns of private equity. So when it comes to those returns, I actually teamed up with Hema Parmar on a story about where all that money's coming from. I think, you know, we don't know a lot, it feels like, about the returns when it comes to private equity. And yet we have to assume that they're good because they continue to attract a lot of new money. Exactly. So if you look over 25 years and you compare how private equity has done compared to the public market, if you had invested money, what kind of return would you have seen from both? You would see a 13% gain from private equity versus about a 9% from so the they, public market. So better. So especially the- over 25 years, yeah, quite good returns. Okay. But like, is it so clear because they're not priced every day? Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of transparency. So can we take that at face value? So there are a number of concerns that people have with how these returns are calculated. And one of them is the math around what's called the internal rate of return, which is um, it's a one key of the metric, metric, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a key metric that investors use to gauge how a private equity fund is doing and if they want to consider them to invest. And so um, the math around that basically is that the, the shorter the amount of time you can invest the investor's actual money, the better the returns will look. So sometimes what funds can do is they can take a loan, invest the leveraged capital, into the investment and then at a later date call the investor's actual money, put that to work, and then that shortens the amount of time and it can pump up an IRR return by about three percentage points. Because it's a shorter duration. That money isn't sitting for a long time because private equity investments tend to be they're not always short term, they're right? They're multiple years. Yes. I think that's interesting because we talk so much about all the dry powder that's sitting around. Mm -hmm. It's not actually sitting in the private equity offices, Mm -hmm. right? It's waiting till they find an investment and then they tap their investor pool. Precisely. And that's Hema Parmar, my co-writer on that story about PE and returns. So the explosive growth of private equity has been fueled in part by big checks from large public pension plans, which are increasingly vocal about social responsibility. They're asking a lot more mm-hmm. questions than they used to about how the money is being made and also who's making the money. So that raises the question, how much are they looking and how much are they concerned about the lack, the utter lack, we should mm-hmm. say, of gender equality across the private equity industry? Sabrina Wilmer, she's been following this story for quite some time, one of our top PE reporters. This story, a great analysis. Help us understand what you found. Well, I looked at the top 10 buyout firms by assets and tried to look at the number of women on these buyout teams that are actually making investments. And what I found is that there are very few women, and most of these firms only have one or two women on these teams that are made up of dozens of investment professionals. And Apollo has one, Hellman and Friedman, and uh, up, and also Carlisle only has 15. So, and, and what kind of positions are they? Are they typically in the most senior? Or? Yeah, I looked at the top two senior positions at each firm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's basically only positions where they're investing money right. in buyouts. To be fair, Sabrina, and I feel like we need to like, 
talk about the Wall Street or financial community overall. Are they kind of the same as what we see on Wall Street and at investment banks or the big banks, or is it worse? Well, according to Prequin, uh, which did a study earlier this year, it was mostly of asset managers. I don't think they included banks in the study, mm-hmm. but they compared private equity to hedge funds and venture capital. And it looks like they have worse representation than even those industries which are known for not having women. And most of the women are in investor relations and marketing positions and financial roles. And so when you talk to them, because you talk to these firms all the time, like what do they say? Well, they say that they obviously need to improve their numbers and and they're doing the best they can to promote more women. And they say some of them say it's a pipeline issue and they're trying to push the boundaries a little bit more because they pull from, you know, the typical banks and private equity. The pipelines are really good already. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) In the same schools. So I, I actually interviewed a recruiter from Russell Reynolds, Heather Hammond, who said that she's pushing her clients to look outside of these firms and look at cor- corporations, corporate development roles um, at That's companies uh, where you can apply those skills mm-hmm. uh, to private equity investing. That's Sabrina Wilmer. And looking at a really important issue, right, equality when it comes to private equity firms. What's fascinating, Jason, is women are especially lacking in running or co-managing the buyout businesses, which is historically, right, the heart of private equity. And and that's where you make the money. Totally. And that's where you make the money. That's Mm -hmm. where you get the experience. Prestige. Absolutely. And that gives you the impetus to go start your own thing. And so they talk about the pipeline. Investors, you know, have said, oh, this is a real problem. But they're really not doing anything about it. The numbers don't lie. Exactly. Well, speaking of private equity, I did get a chance this week, Carol, to catch up with Mike Arigetti. He's a co-founder and CEO of Aries Capital Management. This is a firm that's a little bit outside the traditional private equity definition. They really focus more on private credit, but they have been a big beneficiary of a space where big banks are no longer playing. We talked about lots of different things, including the global macro environment. Markets crave certainty, and we don't have a lot of it right now. And you could look at what's happening in the economy. Fundamentals in the U.S. economy, very strong. But a bifurcation between the manufacturing sector and the service sector, questions about the health of the consumer relative to the uh, lack of health in the the, uh, manufacturing community. So generally, the folks that we talk to are optimistic, cautiously. Balance sheets are strong and healthy. Revenues are up profits are up. But I think we're all starting to talk ourselves into a slowdown and we're starting to see a a little bit of a shift in sentiment. And when you think about sort of the more traditional buyout space, where do you see valuations and how how does that play out through the balance of the year and into 2020? So still a lot of capital in the the private equity market, right? So if you look at it, there's $800 billion of dry powder to be deployed. Um, Deal flow is still adequate, but obviously purchase price multiples are elevated and have been for a very long time. I'd expect that to continue. I think the bigger challenge that we're going to have is private equity, since its inception, has made its most money by making companies it invests in better. For the last 10 years, through the use of leverage, cheap cost of debt, and just value, uh, you know, multiple accretion, folks have been able to generate very, very attractive returns. I think those pro-cyclical strategies are not going to work going forward. So right now, valuation is still very, very stable. Liquidity is still very good. But as we get later in the cycle, the ability to improve companies operationally and drive cash flow growth is going to be paramount to actually outperforming. 
When you think about valuations, uh, you've got to think about sort of private market versus public market. And we have seen that writ large, it feels like, here in 2019 as companies have gone public, maybe with some disappointing results, at least when it comes to valuations. I look back at Peloton just last week. How do you sort of square that a a, a bit, given your work both in the private and the public markets? How does that work itself out? I think there are two questions in there. One is just how are the private markets developing relative to the public markets, not just in terms of valuation, but in terms of capital flow. Yeah. And so part of this, this ongoing conversation that I think we'll be having for decades is, are the private markets, because of their structure, how they're funded, and what we as capital providers can do for private companies, is that affecting ultimately the structure of our public markets? I think the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, companies are staying private longer. The private markets, private equity, and private credit are being, uh, becoming more flexible in what they can do for a private company. That's obviously impacting what's going on in the public market. And so when you look at what's happening in the public markets, fewer public companies than we've ever had, higher concentration of market cap in the hands of, of very few companies in concentrated sectors, and passive investing now outpacing right. active investing. So when you factor all that in, this disconnect, it's very interesting because the companies that need to go public are really the very largest or those that have a valuation disconnect. So from a private equity standpoint, when you look at companies like a Peloton or a WeWork, we're trained to look at cash flow, underwritable, sustainable EBITDA, and ultimately how that converts to value. The public markets, at least historically, have shown a willingness to price in the value of innovation and disruption sometimes detached from the actual cash flow performance of the business. And I think what we're seeing now is a public market pushback on funding that innovation uh, and expressing it as as, as value. That's Michael Arigetti. He's the CEO, co-founder of Aries Capital Management, a big player in private credit, which really gives him some insights into where the world is going. We're in globally uncertain times, to say the least. If you're tired of not being included on the world's list of millionaires or billionaires, alas, don't despair. I am tired of that. <laughs> well, I want to be included. Business Week now has a list that includes you and me. All right. The haves and the have-nots. <laughs> exactly. The haves and the have-nots. Well, he's got all the answers. Peter Coy here with us in New York City. So how'd you come up with this? What What's the deal here? I was looking at all these articles about taxing the wealthy. And Elizabeth Warren started talking about ultra-millionaires. And I said, well, what's really an ultra-millionaire? And I realized that the gradations when we talk about wealth are not fine enough. So people say a millionaire. Well, what's a millionaire? It could be anybody from Joe Blow with a million dollars in net worth on up to somebody worth $999 million. That's a big gap. It's a very big gap. And the same thing with billionaires. I mean, there's a big difference between your Joe Schmo local one billionaire and somebody like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates who have you know, like – over 100 billion in net worth. So the idea is scientific notation, which you, of course, recall from fifth grade. Do you actually? Vaguely. Okay. So, like, a million is one times 10 to the sixth. So, if you're just a simple millionaire, you're a six. A thousand is 10 to the third power. So, that makes you a three. Most people probably are worth more than a thousand dollars, we hope. But so that, that gives it all the way down to. Minus two, which would mean 10 to the negative two, which is one penny. So everybody from a negative two on up to an 11 is on this wealth scale. So 11 is a Bezos, That's Buffett type wealthy. Bucks, yeah. not, not Buffett. Not Buffett anymore. Oh, there's That's only right. two. Right, two 11s. In the world who right now are 11s. Uh, 
There was another one, uh, Arnaud, uh, the right. French billionaire, but alas, he's below the 100 billion. Now he's just a 10. Now. Yeah. Well, see, that's what I kind of love about it, right? You can, like, you know, you're growing up and you're thinking, man, I want to be a seven or an eight or, yeah, an 11, right? You're a 10. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. But I mean, it does create this kind of metric for maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's not intended goals. to engender jealousy. That's not the point. It's really just a scientific metric could be used for good or ill. And so why do you think this is important? Necessary, yeah. Did I say it's important? <laughs> <laughs> All right, but this was a task. <laughs> All right. No, so seriously, I just feel as though, like any scientific measure, it gives you more specificity. It's just one order of magnitude yeah. rather than three, which is what we get when you talk about a millionaire or a billionaire. Well, and I think it, it is important going back to Elizabeth Warren because we are having a much more serious conversation yeah. about the haves and the have-nots, mm -hmm. and yeah. it's not – Binary. It's not a have and have not right. world necessarily. Sometimes right. it feels that way right. in this age of income inequality. But ultimately, when policy comes from yeah. all the politics, there are going to have to be decisions made about tax rates and when you reach certain thresholds, right? I, I like what you said about have and have not because if you think about that, that's very much a binary world, one or the other. And yet there are gradations. Uh, there's some people, I mean, to somebody who's living on the street in a cardboard box, a person with $1,000 in a bank seems incredibly wealthy mm -hmm. and so on. You know, there are millionaires who feel poor because they look at their neighbors who have more than they do. This just kind of gives it a way to, to quantify all that. Right. Well, and what's interesting, as part of your reporting, you guys do include, you know, a chart that kind of looks at all the different levels, and you give us an idea of how many yeah. people are in it. And right. when we talk about haves and have-nots, I do think it's important to kind of start whittling it down so we mm -hmm. really understand, you know, where the wealth is, yes. the true wealth, and where it is not. Right. So I, I worked with the Bloomberg folks who do the billionaires' rankings for the, the top scales. And that's why we have 200 billionaires. And we, Bloomberg estimates about 150. That's a lot. Have 10 to 100 billion. And then a roughly another 2,700 are a billion to 10. Wow. And it's a lot. A lot of people in the world. Right. I mean, you put all the billionaires into one room, it's a very crowded room. And then Credit Suisse, uh, the Global Wealth Report, we relied on for the rest of the uh, numbers. And of course, these are ballpark, you know, but like there's, for example, a one and a half billion people who are worth less than a thousand. But this right. is global, right? Yeah. So if you think about a lot yeah. of developing economies, yeah. right, yeah. that you understand how that number. Yeah. Well, you up. also wonder if now that you have this way of looking at it, if you start to think about different geographies, to your point about emerging mm -hmm. markets yeah. and, and what being a three or a four or a five yeah. means in the United States well, versus other countries or even in different Parts of the United States. Well, that's the concept of purchasing power parity. So this is all done in dollar numbers, but a dollar uh, or its equivalent in local currency buys a lot more, say, in the developing yeah. world. So you can you can have a net worth of a thousand or a hundred bucks and actually be doing okay. I mean, surviving anyway, feeding your family and so on in a in a poor emerging market. And that's Peter Coy. I got to tell you, that guy's so clever and fun. And, you know, I always thought you were a 10, but uh, I think you're not. I'm not. Not when it comes to this new scale, new index in terms of wealth. Uh, your wealth number, is it a 1? Is it a 5? Is it a 10? That story is great. I think everybody wants to be an 11. 
So one of the feature stories this week is about a tech startup backed by a tech billionaire who also backs President Trump. And this startup, it is making its mark on the defense industry and a lot more. Well, and there's so much to dig into in mm-hmm. this story. It's one of these companies where the more you get into it, you think, wow, people really should know about this yeah, because exactly. it's complicated and important. Joshua Brustein is back with us in New York. You dug into this company. Tell us what it is and what it's all about. Yeah. So the company is called Anduril. And it is it describes itself as aspiring to be the um, operating system of the Defense Department, which would basically be the software that kind of connects all the systems, whether those are surveillance cameras and, you know, da- dash cams on Jeeps or aircraft carriers. Um, and so that's a big, big goal. But they've started kind of small, obviously, mm. as you do. Their first deployment was actually with Customs and Border um, Protection on the Mexican border, um, which is in and of itself a pretty controversial place to start. And um, things have kind of taken off from there. Well, and OK. And just by saying that, we know there's controversy here. So talk to us about because I think it's put it the story talks about one of the, you know, Silicon Valley's most controversial startups. Tell us about all the controversy surrounding this company. Yeah, I think there's really every every ingredient of controversy is here. The founder of Andril is is a guy named Palmer Lucky. He founded before this the Oculus Rift headset. Mm-hmm. Um, if you might remember, there was this little piece of technology com- industry lore that was bought. Um, the company was bought by Facebook for two billion dollars. And then right before the 2016 election, it came out that Palmer Lucky was secretly funding a group that was posting insulting uh, billboards of Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Suddenly he disappeared from Facebook and was eventually he says he was fired. Um, Mark Zuckerberg says he was not fired for political reasons. Um, This actually came up in a congressional hearing. It's been sort of a snafu for Facebook. Um, But so Palmer Lucky has this reputation as, you know, kind of the Trumpiest uh, person in Silicon Valley. Then he goes and starts a company whose first project is surveilling the Mexican border right at the time that the Trump uh, border policies are really building up. And then that immediately fed into a debate about should tech be refusing to build things like this? Mm -hmm. And so then you had the Trump administration, which was already causing trouble in Silicon Valley and border surveillance. And they just, you know, really jumped into that. Um, And I think in part they embraced the controversy right. as a way to make a name for themselves. Well, and I wanted to talk about that because this is not a guy who shies away from conflict. Anybody who's buying billboards probably is <laughs> is into that sort of uh, thing. But as you say, he's really, uh, to turn a phrase, like he's leaned into this. I mean, he, he has really built not just his name, but his company's reputation in, in some ways on doing these controversial things. Yeah. And I think there's two things going on here. One is... If you're a company that no one's heard of, one way to get a lot of people to hear about you is to cause controversy. And the other thing is there has been this movement amongst many technologists to say big companies shouldn't be building drone targeting technology or border surveillance. And people have quit Google over Mm -hmm, some of these projects. And so now you have a company that's saying, hey, look, if you want to work on these projects, come to us. Like, we're the ones who you, you can do this for. Because the, the bet is that there is a portion of the Silicon Valley labor pool that wants to do this stuff. Well, and what I find interesting, too, is that the 
military area or the defense companies and contractors, right? They're these old established companies that have been doing it for years. How does this company, essentially a tech startup, kind of make inroads into defense? Yeah, it, it's true. Defense is dominated by a very small handful Boeing, of Lockheed. companies. The the whole process of working with the government is very formulaic. Um, it pays to have people who have been you know working on these contracting mm-hmm. things for decades. And the short answer to your question is they're starting small. They're trying to get in, build some projects on spec, and just give them to the government and say, you know, if this works, like we'd love to sell you more of this. Um, and they're also betting that those companies that you mentioned, your Boeing's, your Lockheed's, they have trouble attracting like top flight uh, software engineering talent, AI talent. And if you're a startup that is a VC-backed startup, they're um, you know they went from nothing to now they're already worth about a billion dollars. Mm. That's kind of the model for getting rich in Silicon Valley now. And they think that a lot of software engineers who wouldn't work for defense contractors will come to them. Well, one of the models of Silicon Valley of late has certainly been somehow being connected to Founders Fund and the folks associated uh, in that orbit. How does that play into this story? Yeah. So Founders Fund is the um, is the investment fund founded by Peter Thiel, who uh, backed the president in the 2016 election. He originally started PayPal, but he's kind of the other most uh, the other technologist most associated with Donald Trump. And Anderl has an uneasy relationship with their connection to Peter Thiel. I talked to them a lot for this story. I spent some time in the office. They really wanted to say that Peter Thiel had nothing to do with this company. They say, look, Founders Fund is just an investment fund. He happens to be involved. We happen to, they happen to be one of our investors. So they really want to play it down. At the same time, like this fits into some of Peter Thiel's other business interests. Palantir is another software company that does very similar work. Talk to us, though, a little bit about the work that they're doing, because the story opens up with uh, one of the engineers, and he's playing around (laughs) or showing how their drones can work. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the actual project that my story mostly focuses on is a project they call the Interceptor, Mm -hmm. and it's basically a drone that autonomously will fly into other drones and knock them out of the air. The idea is that... Cheap hobbyist drones are being used in an increasing number of military ways. And as we just saw in Saudi Arabia. As we just saw in Saudi Arabia, um, although those were larger drones, but we have right. seen smaller drones used um, you know, in an assassination attempt, mm-hmm. uh, in, in various attacks, and they're very hard to deal with. So the idea is we could just build a bunch of small drones and put self-flying software on them and tell them anything that breaches this airspace, just ram into until it falls down. And um, they think this is a cheap and relatively easy solution to patrol, you know, borders, right. military bases, mm-hmm. and maybe other places. They've they've had discussions with selling these to commercial clients who have to defend like oil and gas facilities. Well, and that takes us into this whole other realm of Silicon Valley sort of pushing the envelope, drones being sort of the tip of the spear in, in some mm-hmm. ways. I feel like we've talked to you about it before, sort of how is this going to fit into even the cultural and social fabric? How are we even thinking about technology in this way, especially at a time when I feel like we're thinking of technology a little bit more skeptically or, or holistically? <laughs> sure. Um, I think that you're right. They have now stepped, put their foot 
slightly into another big hot button debate in Silicon Valley, um, which is whether we should build autonomous weaponry. Right. And if so, what should be in place to um, what regulations and so on should be in place. You know, Andrew's answer is clearly, yes, we should build autonomous weaponry. They refer to this thing as, as an autonomous or semi-autonomous weapon. At the moment, they, have, they do have some safeguards in place. Uh, you have to, it will identify the target and then ask someone, show them a picture and ask someone whether they want to hmm. attack. So they're not out there just like shooting around. Um, and they are also designed to go after only these consumer drones right now. But they're already working on a prototype that they say could go after larger targets, maybe helicopters. And then you have a semi-autonomous weapon that could maybe kill somebody. Well, that's the concern, right? The ethical concerns about right now it's not targeting humans, but, you know, these things develop and become, you know, used in many, many different ways. And so that's one of the concerns here. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that's really interesting about this particular company is that, you know, even people who are worried about autonomous weapons described this near-term use case, knocking down a hobbyist drone that's breaching a military base, as like, you know, probably okay. Like, right. I mean, that seems... Sure. That seems we fair. Need, we need to deal with that. But, like, how are we not going to end up somewhere we don't want to be? And if the way that we're developing these weapons is by saying, hey, 120-person startup who, you know, was founded two years ago and builds things on their own... Have at it. Let's right. see, let's see what you come up with. I, I think that's a question that people are uncomfortable with. Well, and as we discussed, we are getting to this point where move fast and break stuff isn't necessarily the way we feel like we should be proceeding. And as but, we deal with the, com- the the sort of yeah. the complicated now recent history of social media, if you look at a leading edge technology like this, you wonder if like let's just see what happens and then we'll walk it back is really mm-hmm. the best uh, way to proceed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like you know this isn't social media. Right. Like, this is a this is a very high stakes yeah. application. And you know, Andrew will say like all tech companies say, you know, we aren't just doing things willy nilly. We're you know we're concerned. We're focused on problems. You know, we're. You know, we're good people. We're, our business partners are the U.S. government and its allies. Like, there are safeguards in place. Right. At the same time, like we've seen in recent past that, like, those safeguards tend to break down when they are not thought about in advance. Right. And full disclosure, Andreessen Horowitz, right, is also an investor. And Bloomberg LP is an investor in Andreessen Horowitz. Correct. So just to kind of put that out there. There you go. That's Joshua Brewstein writing one of the feature stories this week. It's a controversial startup, right? And it's really kind of upending the traditional state world of defense companies, but it's got some very interesting Republican backers. Right. So many characters mm-hmm. in this story, but also some really big issues to tackle when it comes to the role of technology, especially when it comes to defense. On Wednesday, Delta Airlines announced that costs would rise more than expected this year. Non-fuel costs to fly each seat a mile will climb 2% this year, Jason, rather than the 1% previously forecast. Well, and Carol, while the reasons for Delta's higher costs appeared specific to the airlines, the news really did spur some concern over signs of a weakening economy here in the U.S., and abroad. Delta kicks off third quarter airline earnings reports this week, and investors may fear problems lurking at other carriers. So before this news, this announcement this week, we sat down with the company's CEO, Ed Bastian, for another edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks. We talked about the trade war, oil markets, and airline consolidation, really some of the big macro issues facing airlines today. So, Ed, so much going on in the world. Let's start on the sort of geopolitical, geoeconomic front. 
the trade war. Are you seeing any blowback through your business from that? Not in a material way. We're, we're seeing some effects, particularly in Asia. They tend to be more around our big corporate customers, automotive, you know, manufacturing, that, that are not seeing the, the same type of demand for their products, so they're pulling back some of their spend and, and travel patterns. But Asia, for us, is one of the smaller regions within our total revenue pie, and uh, we're, not, we're not seeing a wide—we're watching it you know, right. carefully, but we're not seeing a major, a major you know, decline. Obviously, disruption in the oil market. How does that play through, if at all, for you in terms of your fuel costs, in terms of your hedging strategies— any elements that are sort of popping up there? Well, it's a reminder of, of how volatile uh, the, the business climate, the environment in which we operate. Uh, that said, you know, we're already seeing fuel prices start to moderate. Uh, we've built our business to be sustainable at much higher fuel prices than $65 Brent. Mm-hmm. So we're on the front end of that, uh, anticipating uh, what we might face in terms of future future challenges. But from a revenue durability standpoint, a balance sheet perspective, we think we're pretty well situated. So let's talk about your investors. You know, you have won a lot of plaudits from your customers, and there are some investors who are very much on board. And by certain measures, the stock is done very well. But by other measures, it it feels a little bit stagnant, uh, dare I say it. Uh, What's the street missing? Well, I think it's it's a prove-it story. You know, our, our largest investor, uh, Warren Buffett, he, he owns 11% of, of Delta. I think he has a great line it's about our industry. We were like the Chicago Cubs of the of the business world. You know, we didn't have a bad decade; we had a bad century. Yeah. And uh, we're we're on a different different platform now. We've you know the last 10 years, we've really invested in the fundamentals of running a great airline with reliability and performance and service levels unseen in Delta's history and candidly within the industry as a whole in terms of scale. That's been been rewarded by our customers with customer satisfaction scores and brand loyalty and preference at levels we've never seen before, which we're taking back and continuing to reinvest in the customers and reinvest in our airports and our technologies, while at the same time generating you know meaningful free cash flow. I think that's the other thing the investors historically have not seen from the airlines. While the airlines may have performed at certain periods of time, they also spent back mm-hmm. what they what they made. On, on labor, on technology, on, on, on capital and, and fleet. We're, we're doing that, but we're also you know, returning a meaningful amount. So this year, Delta, we expect to make over $5 billion for the fifth year in a row in terms of profits. But we'll also have free cash flow delivery this year of over $4 billion. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that performance and that consistency of performance over time is rewarding. And, and I, I do think that, that investors will, will stay with us and, and hopefully see, see improvements in the PE. So there has been a bit of a divergence, it feels like, across the global airline industry. You feel like it feels like you're, you're one of the haves. There may be some have-nots out there. Are, are we going to see some more consolidation, and, and will you participate in that? I, I don't think you'll see consolidation in a meaningful way in the U.S. You may see it in, in, in it's maybe other, other parts mm-hmm. of, the, of the airline market, not necessarily participating relative to Delta. Internationally, I do think you'll see. Yeah. Uh, Europe, you're already seeing it. You're seeing bankruptcy in Europe in terms of some of the European carriers. I think you'll continue to see some consolidation trends there. Uh, so on the on the global scene, 
uh, that's where we've been investing. We've invested in a number of our partners right. and really not consolidation. It's more to have influence within within our, our global network of, of carriers. Uh, you'll see more of that from Delta potentially, but I don't think on the U.S. side you'll see that. And what do those partnerships tend to look like now and, and what might they look like in the future, either geographically or are there new and different things that, that you can try to sort of create that, that family, as it were? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things I think that has not been successful in the airline world are the alliances. You know, we, we I'm self-critical of the Sky Team Alliance. I don't think we've, we've brought a lot of great value to customers. I don't think we've brought a lot of great value to our member airlines. And we're going at this thing in a very different approach. We're going at it through Delta, making bilateral investments right. in the most important partners. We own 49% of Virgin Atlantic. We own 49% of Air Mexico, the two closest carriers to us on either side of the, of, of the country. Uh, we're invested in Air France, KLM. We've invested in Korean. We've invested in China Eastern. We've invested in gold down in Brazil. And as a, as a consequence, what you see is you see this network of influence that we're having within those companies. So those companies want to know what, what Delta has learned about operational efficiency and prowess. And that's Ed Bastian, the Delta CEO. It was really good to catch up with him. What an interesting guy. You know, I joked before we went on the air that I really only knew him from those little video screens on the backs of seats uh, on his plane. So it was kind of like meeting a movie star in, in some ways. That's funny. Uh, but he's got a big job on his hands. He's yeah. been very successful. WeWork, it seems so innovative and in sync initially with our ever-increasingly sharing economy, many buying into this melding, Jason, of work and life. Well, I feel like when we started this year, we thought, wow, this is such a 2019 company. Yeah. And at this point in the year, it feels like, whoa, that is a 2019 <laughs> company. Ellen Hewitt is here with us. She joins us from San Francisco, tracking every twist and turn. And Ellen, as we were uh, talking before we came on air, you mentioned the fact that you know, you've been watching this for a while, and obviously the scrutiny increases as a company gets closer and closer to going public. But wow, there's scrutiny and then there's scrutiny. Yeah, it's, you know, I've covered WeWork uh, for at this point, probably more than three years. And I've written about a lot of different stuff about them. Um, you know, I remember even a couple of years ago, I was writing stories about, um, you know, the people who work running their offices. These are people who are the community managers and stuff. And, and they dealt with some of the stuff that you're kind of hearing echoes of now, which was there was a lot of partying in the offices. You know, they had to come in and, and deal sometimes with drunk members or, or sometimes the detritus leftover after people had used the offices for parties and things like that. And, and it's just interesting to see how, yeah, attention on this company has really evolved as it has become bigger and bigger. So like you said, at the beginning of 2019, you know, when it got this round of funding from SoftBank that valued it at $47 billion. All of a sudden, it was this huge company. And as it prepared to go public, which we learned about in April, then I think that's really when people started looking at it and thinking like, is this company ready? And really anticipating the S1, which came in August, which I know was a very exciting day for me. And, and, we, and then it sort of it feels like at each turn, there's more that's revealed. And there aren't huge surprises for someone who's covered the company for so long. I think the, the culture has been pretty consistent. But it has been interesting to see how public investors or public potential investors have have viewed some of the, the conflicts of interest, the corporate governance structures, the personalities at the top of the company, um, and not always reacted very favorably. So family was a big element at this company, and ultimately it was a big part of its undoing. How did all of this kind of seem to go under the radar for such a long time, Alan? So it's interesting. There's 
kind of two ways to look at the role that family plays in WeWork. So this has always been a company that's about communal spirit. Um, you know, remember they had um, community-adjusted EBITDA was one of the financial metrics that they used in an earlier financial uh, document. They took it out for the S1. But it's been part of their ethos. You know, they talk about life is better together. They explain, you know, sort of make a life, not just a living. They, they really want to bring work and life together. And I think that ends up blending personal and professional. And then separately, the uh, the people at the top, this is Adam Newman, um, Rebecca Newman, and, and some of the other people who help run WeWork, really are also very comfortable having family ties play a big role at the workplace. So obviously, you know, Adam and Rebecca are married. Um, when you look at the origin story of the company, it's actually Adam and Miguel, the other co-founder. And then Rebecca sort of emerges four or five years in as someone who now has a co-founder title. This is something that if you look at early stories about WeWork, this was not something they discussed, but she became more important as the company became bigger. And then beyond that, there, as we mentioned in you know, our story this week, there's a lot of other family ties at WeWork. Um, there are, you know, Rebecca's cousin was the head of real estate for a long time. His parents ran the uh, summer camp where WeWork used to have their summer retreats. Her brother-in-law, um, up until this past week, actually worked at WeWork as a vice chair. Um, you know, there were some others that were disclosed in the S1, a brother-in-law of Adams, as someone who runs the, like, gym and fitness offering at WeWork. Uh, there was another family that family member that was paid for some of the events, live events that they put on. Um, it just kind of goes on and on. There are a lot of people who are personal friends of Adam who work at WeWork, including people who he knew from his childhood in Israel. So he feels, I think, uh, you know, a strong sense of loyalty to people. This is something his wife has described in interviews. And I think it comes out in how he chooses to do his professional dealings. Um, and, and they were, at least at the top, very comfortable with having strong personal ties among the executive team and, and sort of the, the VP levels and above. Well, and Ellen, to that extent, and to the extent that it is a very convoluted structure, a complicated structure, mm -hmm. and one that is certainly atypical, how much of it went unnoticed because there was really one big major investor setting the tone, setting the valuation, and really providing the most oversight, and that, of course, was SoftBank. That might end up being the biggest takeaway about this all, which is what happens when you really get the majority of your venture funding from one place. Uh, you know, since 2017, the only source of outside funding for WeWork has been SoftBank. They invested first about $4.4 billion in a big round in 2017. And then in conse like uh, consecutive rounds after that, there were other, um, you know, fundings from SoftBank, but all only from there. There were never other investors involved. And in the end, they, SoftBank invested more than $10 billion in this company. And they're by far, you know, the biggest investor. And you can, you can extrapolate to the conclusion that, you know, the, the only two people who needed to decide WeWork's valuation for the last couple of years have been Masayoshi Son and Adam Newman. And if you have these two people in agreement, that might be how you end up with a valuation like $47 billion that Many other people, when you ask them if they would buy WeWork stock at that price, they said, uh, I don't think so. Hmm. Well, and not only the valuation, but also the corporate oversight to a large extent, because as you uh, and some of our other colleagues have reported, you know, the board was obviously, and this is not that anomalous, you know, obviously very much stacked with people who were sympathetic to Adam Newman. It, it just looked unchecked in a lot of ways. 
yeah, not only sympathetic to Adam Newman, but really without that much power to um, overrule him. Right. So since about 2014, he's had majority voting control of the board. Obviously, that changed in the last couple of weeks. But, you know, this is, I think, another example that people are going to turn to when they want to make the argument that modern boards, especially for these big, high-flying venture-backed startups, um, they don't really exert that much power. They're, they're agreeing to all these things that the CEO wants to do, maybe out of a need to feel like they're founder-friendly or maybe out of not wanting to distance themselves or, or start a schism within the board between them and the executive. But you're seeing that that's not really providing the check and balance on good and bad ideas that, that a company might come up with. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that WeWork did, not just in corporate governance, but in some of its business decisions that are now being rolled back by the new co-CEOs that at least is suggesting that some people within the company didn't think they were a good idea. Uh, you know, these are some of the acquisitions that the company made that felt a little outside of their core business of renting real estate. That's Ellen Hewitt coming from our San Francisco Bureau. Man, she's been covering this story for a long time and really following all of the family members that have been working at the company, which only really seemed to come to light as the company tried to go public. Right. And once investors really got a sense of what was going on underneath, that's when the real problem started. So fender benders accidents, if you live in the New York metro area or I feel like any major city, man, you probably have had one or two or more, right? Yeah, but usually it's not so big of a deal. Insurance company. You got your car guy, you drop it off, he fixes it, yeah. and it's all good. But what if your car costs a quarter <laughs> million dollars or more? It's a whole other thing. Hannah Elliott's got all the answers as usual. She's here with us in New York City. So Carol is not so careful sometimes with her Bugatti. So <laughs> wow, what does she careful. do? Well, you're probably going to call Bugatti directly and say, hey, guys, you may want to send a truck. And then the car will be sent back to France. That's where. That's repairs. what happens. Yeah. It's and a whole- you're, you're not going to see it for a while. It's going to be some months before you get it back. Well, tell <laughs> us why. Because this is. I love that you talk about one in- individual. You talk about a Chris Singh, is it? Yeah, Chris tell, Singh. Tell us a little bit about him and what he, happened with him. He is a great character, very famous on Instagram. He's got over a million followers. Um, and he's a car collector. He's known for collecting Paganis, Koenigseggs, Lamborghinis, that sort of thing. And he got hit by an Uber driver in Miami. And um, the guy basically sheared off one of his wheels. And he he told me his first call was to Pagani. And um, they sent a truck. The car goes back to the factory in Italy. He doesn't see it for several months. um, But then several months later is reunited with the car in Italy and actually has driven it, you know, thousands of miles and rallies since. So it's a long, involved process. He didn't just send it to, you know, the corner dealership because there is none. (laughs) And what is it? I mean, I guess it's not shocking that these cars are complicated and, and somewhat fragile, but I have to say, this is even more intense than than maybe I thought it would be. It's pretty intense. I mean, if you look at Lamborghini, they've got a program called the Flying Doctors, where they have um, some engineers that are trained by Boeing that they deploy anywhere there's a major crash from one of their um, valuable owners. Um, and those guys will strip the car down to basically nothing, to the monocoque tub, and gradually graft in new layers, You know, build new components on site, Anything needed. Um, again, these, you know, or Lamborghini will ship the car to uh, the University of Washington in Seattle and in their labs there repair it there. So you're dealing with high tech components that 
most dealers and shops don't have. Hannah, what does yeah. something like this cost? And I'm always curious about the insurance <laughs> side of it, right? I mean, do you actually yeah. file claims with your insurance and do they cover this kind That's of? That's a really good question. And it's a case by case basis. Yeah. It's really interesting. Of course, none of the guys I spoke to really want to share with me, you know, their um, insurance numbers and, and um, that sort of thing. Chris Singh told me, uh, insurance did cover the repair for the Pagani that was hit by the Uber driver. Um, another owner told me if the damages are under $200,000 or so, he's not going to re- report right. the damages. Under $200,000. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just not worth it proportionally. If you have a car that's a couple million dollars, right. it's really not worth it for what it might do to his insurance premiums. Um, I spoke with the guys at Haggerty and they, they too said, look, this is a really touchy subject. It's a case by case thing. Um, to get a quote on this, you're talking thousands of dollars just, um, per month. Well, and it's a reminder that it's one thing to be able to afford a car just to buy one of these cars, (laughs) but the ongoing maintenance, even outside of a fender, fender bender or some sort of crash is massive just taking yes. care of these things it's Changing incredible for one um example the mclaren f1 i spoke with mclaren this is a very special car that was built in the 90s they estimate that just maintenance on the mclaren f1 is thirty thousand dollars a year just to maintain um, and they recommend each year sending the car back to the fact the mclaren factory in england for oil changes you know uh, brake checks the realignment anything you might need on a regular car um on the F1, it costs so much more, and they're going to do it at headquarters. What was the figure around an oil change? Was it $8,000? $8,000 for an oil change for a wheel repair, tire repair, around $6,000. You know, you can get that done for free at your local shop a lot of the time. So, well, yeah. what, what are these, you know, the supercar makers? I mean, if somebody perhaps at a shop or a private mechanic works on a car, do they yeah. even want to touch it after that? No. No, no. And really, you know, Aston Martin has the Vulcan, Aston Martin Vulcan. This is a very famous car that they have just started delivering, you know, basically right now. Um, They've said you can't like you sign papers that say you've got to let us work on it. We want our original people who built the car to work on the car. If you Mm. go out of shop, that kind of negates any agreement you have with the automaker. Wow. Yeah. And so is this just the the world we're living in, this sort of high-touch, you know, high cost? I mean, you, you talk about cars all the time, and we yeah. talk about automation and right, all these different right. elements of, of the car world. Is this just getting more extreme as the rest of the world goes the other way? I think so. Um, I will say one owner, I think, had a great point, Dan King. He's a big collector in Southern California. He said, look, I just keep a couple of guys on my own payroll who – work very closely with the Koenigsegg factory, but he has them in-house in California. I think that's the smart way to do it. And probably we're going to see more and more of that where you just retain the services of, you know, um, certified people under your own house. And Jay Leno had a great story that (laughs) is only... Can you imagine? Well, tell us what happened. Well, this was in his garage. He was backing up one of his Lamborghini Miras and backed it into the other. Who who has that problem oh, in life? I mean, I mean yeah. yeah. But just luckily, the, other day. <laughs> the great thing is Jay has a whole shop at his disposal. Right. So, um, he at least could repair the cars on site. Do they do they ever total a car? That's a good question, cars? too. It really depends. Going back to the McLaren F1, you know, there's this famous case of Mr. Bean who twice crashed his 
F1 car, um, but sold it for more. He made like an $8 million profit when he sold it from what he had paid for it. Because there's not a lot so, out there, right? No. That's the thing. They, yeah. um, McLaren made 106 of them. They're not making any more. Right. The idea is you can't really total it just because it's valued so highly now. Well, and to your point, in so many cases, if it is really damaged, they're really just going to rebuild it. Completely. Right? Completely. Essentially from the ground up. Completely. You know, Chris Singh told me that. Dan Kang told me that. Look, if, it, if you do get to the point where you have to send it back, they're basically building you a, a new, new one. car. And that's Hannah Elliott. You know, her job, it's so tough. And, you know, she did have to talk to people who were in a very sad state of affairs because their $3 million car was in the shop in England for months at a time. Well, exactly. We get a fender bender, right? We call up the insurance company. We go to the corner mechanic and get it fixed in a couple of weeks. It's a very different story when you own a supercar. So it's time for Pursuits. We're here with the editor, Chris Rouser, and we start with cheese, making the perfect cheese plate. This is news you can use. I'm just going to say it. I, I, totally I literally agree. read this story. Yes. And I thought, I'm going to tear this out of my paper magazine. I'm going to put it on the refrigerator because a good cheese plate is important. Yeah. And, you know, we've been sitting on this story since summer. Because we were like, oh, we thought of it, and we were like, you know, summer isn't the best time for cheese plates. You leave it out in the sun. It gets hot, kind of melts. Um, but it's there's a little a, moist. <laughs> there's a new cheese plate book. There's a website devoted to cheese plates. There's Instagram accounts devoted to this. So we thought now is the time to really go over the basic rules. Right. So Kate Crater <laughs> talked to a bunch of cheese plate ex- experts, and we got some tips. And some of them actually were a surprise to me. Um, one of the tips that she recommends is actually including vegan cheese, which is something that I am sort of spiritually against, but uh, it's actually a great idea. You know, if you have vegan guests. Have you tried it? uh, I didn't try it, but some of the vegan haters on our team did try it. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it's nut cheese, right? So it's it's using like almond milk and cashew milk in it. Yeah, it's pretty good, actually. But it's a nice option, right? And it's really being nice to your guests. Yeah. And then another thing she said to think about is timing, actually. So, uh, you know, I just shove whatever cheese is in the fridge out on a plate right before guests get there. But actually, you should have your cheese come to room temperature before because then it becomes softer. It's the right uh, way to cut it. So, you know, maybe like 45 minutes before you're ready, take the cheese out of the refrigerator. You also point out that different cheeses require different types of Mm -hmm. presentation, slicing versus chipping, Chipping. which I didn't really know was a thing, but but help us, help us understand. Yeah. So if you have like a small soft cheese, you can serve like a log or in a, in a wheel, you can serve that whole, but if you're getting something bigger, even like a, a a blue cheese or like sort of an aged Gouda, something that's going to be hard, actually get in there with a, with a knife and chip pieces off. Um, you know, the way you might see Parmesan cheese served like at a restaurant or something so that people can just grab a chunk. I love, too, that there's kind of like fill-in things, right? Like nuts and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, you'll, oftentimes you'll see sort of like a quince or a fig uh, jam on a cheese plate. But, you know, there's all sorts of directions you can go. So what Kate and the chefs recommend is sort of creating veins of like cured meat that sort of wave through the plate. And then fill in any empty spaces with nuts or dried fruit or fresh fruit or stuffed hot peppers. Um, or there's sort of or something hot and spicy like mm. a mustardo uh, is a a good idea. So just get some variety on there. The other takeaway I had from this is essentially more is more. Like load it yes. up. And yeah. the, you know, nobody likes a skimpy looking cheese plate. And in fact, even sort of like a, a well 
organized cheese plate is not as important as sort of a bounty. Yes, it, felt it like. should look like it's erupting. It should look like a cornucopia of stuff. It's not that sort of fine dining thing where you get a little itty bitty tiny thing on a plate. You want as much cheese as possible. All right, a lot of cheese. Um, all right, that's good to know. Uh, <laughs> Aren't you I, so glad we all went to journalism school? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. because on. it brings us to this next story. Yeah. <laughs> Swim up bars. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Sandals in Montego Bay. Sandals, a great, you know, uh, chain all of resorts, right? all-inclusive, great place for Seen families. Seen their commercials. Yes. Uh, well, they're really pushing the Montego Bay place right now. And so they approached us, and they were like, you know, it's the 35th anniversary of our You knew that, Chris Swim Up Bar. Sorry, I knew that, I knew that, but I didn't know if everyone else knew <laughs> okay. Right. And um, they were like, you know, we've redone it. And it actually was the first swim up bar in the Caribbean. And so they were like, do you want to look at a history of the swim up bar? And I was like, yes. Yes, I do. Your publicist is going to get a raise. Um, and we really looked into it. And it, it there's a totally funny, interesting history of the swim up bar. It sort of started actually in Las Vegas when people would be hanging out by the pool. And casino owners were like, we're losing money when people are relaxing. How do we get – how do we get them to spend while they're chilling out? So they actually moved casino tables out to the pool and uh-huh. then they put bars out by the pool. And then in the Caribbean at the Sandals, they were like, why can't we serve people drinks while they're in the pool? Let's just put a bar in the it pool. It is really decadent. Like there's something about it like is. swimming up and it's like, yeah, okay, it's cheesy, but it's great. I mean, some of the cheesiest things are the best. But I, aren't you surprised that it's only 35 years old? I, For some reason, I thought it was a lot older. Yeah, well, actually, Sandals claims that even serving cocktails on the beach uh, is is actually a relatively recent invention. Like they mm. they say they sort of started doing it like 40 years ago and it wasn't a thing before that. My theory is that when the Greeks were on Mount Olympus, <laughs> yeah. they were serving <laughs> drinks on the beach. But they, but apparently this whole thing is actually pretty recent. Well, and it's become even more of a phenomenon and the aesthetics of it are that much more important in the age of Instagram. You know, because yes. you have so many people who really want to, first of all, take a picture of themselves on vacation to make everyone jealous that they're on vacation yeah. and having a drink and at the swim out bar. And so that leads to people really investing in the look, not just the booze. Yeah. So one of the fancier places that we talked to, the Four Seasons in Maui, they say their most Instagram spot is their swim up bar. So mm-hmm. they've got a lot of beautiful places and they're like, that's where everyone wants to go to, to make content. But who knew that there was actually a swim-up bar right here in Manhattan? I had no idea. Oh, I have been in that swim-up bar. <laughs> have you? Ooh, tell, tell us. There is a swim-up bar at a hotel in Times Square, uh, the Roommate Hotel, two words, roommate. And, um, you know, actually it was a different hotel probably 10 years ago, and they've always had this pool bar. And if you are brave enough, you can get in the pool and swim around in Times Square. Is and- it fun? It is fun. You know, it's, yeah, it is fun. It's funny. It's it's not a huge pool. It's like kind of a small pool. It's sort yeah. of a novelty. But what, the the time that I was there, someone, it was someone's birthday, someone threw the cake in the pool, and then you had to get out of the pool. So, oh, like, it's, boy. you know, it's not, it's a dicey proposition. It's Carol, Times Square. No, Carol, it was not me. It was not me. No, um, no, no, no. But, yeah, if you want to, you can. All right. So... What? I don't know where to go. <laughs> I know. Well, one thing Brooklyn. I would like to do is, like, Check out the Brooklyn Academy of Music because there is a lot of interesting things going on. Isn't like Madonna going to be there even? So Madonna is at the Brooklyn Academy of Music right now. She's been there for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, Yeah. she wanted to start her Madam X tour in a sort of more intimate environment. I mean, it's a 2,000 person theater, so it's not 
tiny, but uh, it's a lot smaller than the arenas she normally plays. Yeah. Um, and BAM is this cultural institution in the heart of Brooklyn, has three theaters and a bunch of spaces. Uh, they're building some more art spaces. It's been around a lot longer than swim-up bars. Yeah, it's been around for 150 years. Sorry, I had to figure out some kind of connection. <laughs> and it is one Belated, of, but good. I know. A little slow here. one of the city's largest arts institutions, actually, and it's it can be very overlooked. People in Brooklyn love yeah. it. Um, but they get incredible international artists. They get celebrities to do to do plays um and it you know they're really trying to bring it to the next level and they're also trying to adapt to a changing brooklyn you know right uh 30 years ago fort green where where bam is uh was a very low-income neighborhood and now it's it's very yuppified Mm -hmm. and they want to continue to bring in you know audiences that represent all of brooklyn and so they're trying all sorts of different new kinds of productions from all over the world to try to draw in these people well and that is what was so interesting to me about it is this notion of, you know, Brooklyn in this moment of, I wouldn't say existential crisis, but certainly a little bit of angst about, is it going to hold on to what it was, mm-hmm. especially in the context of the city of New York, or is it just going to be gentrified like everything else? Manhattan junior. Yeah. I mean, for right on the back of Fort Greene is downtown Brooklyn and every single block is a, is a, a skyscraper is being built like a residential mm. condo tower or a rental tower. And it's, so it's a very changing neighborhood and Fort Greene really represents that area, that well, whole change. And to that point, they have a new artistic director. Actually, he's been there for a little bit, of, a little while. And he comes from an interesting background, like a Broadway background. So he brings some different Yeah. Traits to that job. So we wanted to do this story because David Binder is the new artistic director and he replaced a guy who'd been there for 35 years. Mm. So this is a new, a really new Mm -hmm. moment for BAM. And so, and and David Binder uh, produced the Highline Festival, which was curated by David Bowie. Very cool. And he also produced uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, uh, which won a Tony and was a very cool sort of transgressive Broadway production. So he's got sort of a a, a big leagues uh, experience that he's going to bring to BAM. All right, so with all of this, after all the cheese, drinking at the Swim Up Bar, maybe going to a production at BAM, maybe I just want to go for a run. Yes, I know you My do. tunes, I want to listen to, you know, Carol's in my podcast so I can <laughs> critique us. Uh, how am I going to do does this? that. So uh, Beats by Dre has a new set of headphones, the Power Beats Pro. They're $250, and they're over ear. They're independent of each other, um, and they have an incredible sound quality. I tested them out. A few people on our team tested them out, um, and they, they're great noise canceling. Uh, they have great bass. It's just a really good sound system. Are they comfy? They're very comfortable. They, ride, they, they rest on your ears. They don't um, jam into your, right. into your ears the way that some do, so you can wear them for a long time. Uh, we really like them and we tested a bunch. So, well, and what's interesting is just to remind people is, you know, Apple and Beats are together. Mm-hmm. And right. so you kind of get the best of both worlds here. And uh, I do think a lot of our listeners and, and viewers don't go in for like the big over ear, the cans, uh, the yeah. cans, and, you know, want something that's a little more subtle. And these are waterproof or is it? Like for uh, yeah, they're sweatproof. Yeah, sweat yeah. Proof. I w- you can't go swimming with them, but yeah, they you can get them pretty wet. What do they cost? They cost two hundred fifty dollars. Mm. All right, that's Chris Rouser. And who would have thought that it would be so interesting and so complicated to create the perfect cheese plate? I had no idea, but I ripped that page out of the magazine, and let me tell you. I'm up in my cheese game. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.
newsnetwork.com. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That's on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.